Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Christina Katapotis. Uh, and we're going to talk about her book, New College Classroom, The New College Classroom. Uh, Dr. Katapotis is the Associate Director of Transformative Learning in the Humanities and the winner of the 2019 Diana Colbert Innovative Teaching Prize and the 2018 Dewey Digital Teaching Award. Uh, Dr. Katapotis, wonderful to have you on today. Excited to talk about the uh, state of academia and how it can get better. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so first and foremost, and I, you you wrote this with uh, Kathy Davidson. Um, mm -hmm. Why this book? How did this book come about? Great question. Um, so I started out, um, I got my master's in um, American studies um, and I had a break in between um, that and getting my PhD. And I taught at a community college in um, Florida and got thrown into the lion's den, um, kind of like with no preparation. I, there was like a brief orientation. I had very little teaching experience. The idea was just, well, you have the expertise, so surely you can teach. And that is not how it works in K through 12. Um, this is unique to higher ed. This is part of what we've inherited from the 19th century. Um, that no, teacher education is for grade school that, you know, as long as you have expertise, surely you can teach. Um, and that is not the case. <laughs> um, and so I had been working with, um, Kathy for a few years in the Futures Initiative, um, as a graduate, uh, research fellow, and we'd been working together. I'd been blogging about my teaching, some of the experiments that I was doing in my classroom, with my students as co-learners, as co-creators. And she was like, I think we should write a book together. And I was like, I want it to be something that I wish someone had handed me when I started teaching. You know, I adjuncts, um, graduate students, um, or, you know, teaching for the first time, even in a tenure track role, we don't really get the kind of support and training that we need. Um, and that disadvantages everyone involved, our students, ourselves. Um, and I think that um, there's just more that we could do to prepare ourselves for the students um, that are in our classrooms today, because that older way of teaching, right? You sit in a desk, you listen. That's not active learning. That's not being engaged and ready for the world, engaged and ready to learn. That's learning how to, this is what um, Samuel Delaney says, learning how to not ask for a raise, learning how to not advocate for yourself, how to not participate in the world, or even worse, believing that there is someone out there smarter than me, the person standing in the front of the room somewhere who will solve that problem because I don't have the skills to solve that problem. Someone else will solve climate change. Someone else will solve social inequities, right? someone smarter than me, because that's what we teach our students in that kind of traditional lecture, unless we ask them questions, ask them to engage and tell them that we expect their participation, we expect their engagement so that they can become citizens of the world and participate in a democratic society and make things better um, to become problem solvers. So um, when I started kind of experimenting and tweaking um, a lot, you know, and I met Kathy along the way and um, we started working together. Um, I did things like I left a part of my syllabus blank and students would elect, like propose what to fill in that space. Hmm. And then we'd uh, come up with the criteria together and then we'd vote, okay, this is the novel we're going to read for our fiction unit. And um, I got up to the point where 60% um, of my syllabus was left blank. So I'd have everything planned through the beginning of October and then nothing. There's a blank 
page after page after page. And I'd have to tell my students, like, you can trust me. We're going to do this together. I'll hold your hand through the process, but you are going to come up with what we're going to read because I want to know what you're curious about. What do you want to learn? And some of the students are like, cut the reins and let me go. Leave me alone. And some of the students are like, but you are the expert. You know what we should read. And I'm like, but I don't know what questions you have about the world. I don't know what you're most excited about. You have to tell me. And then we can work it out together through conversation and co-creation. That prepares students for the kind of world that we're in. We don't, gosh, as a parent particularly, right? I have two kids under the age of four. I wish that someone could hand me like five options, A, B, C, D, or all of the above or whatever, and just say, okay, so of these available options, this is what you should do, right? There's one right answer. That's not how we live in the world, right? It's always a blank slate. And I teach American Lit, so it's like, well, that constitution came from somewhere, right? We had to like, so how do we take the world as a blank slate for ourselves or our career or our future and fill it in? You have to get practice and best to do that in community and in this space where we're doing critical thinking, we're practicing for the world, right? This is where we learn how to prepare ourselves for the world in which we live and how we want to be in it. So that's why this book. I, uh, your passion is very apparent. Um, oh, thank you for uh, just a really, uh, it's an exciting answer. Um, you know, you, you talked about uh, going back and forth on, on this. And it's really interesting how this intersects a lot with my own journey in, in several ways. Um, you talked about your a lot of your uh, influences being John Dewey. Um, I mean, you won an award with his name in it. So of course, right? The um, But the uh, bell hooks. Uh, and you mentioned at one point that their vision, you, you wanted to add something because their writings tend to be more polemical. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you took for them and why you felt the need to add because uh, what mm. it means that they are more polemical or at least okay. bell hooks. I don't think you said that about John sure. Dewey, but I mean, John Dewey. So I'm a 19th century Americanist, John Dewey, that's his era. Right. Um, and I've always kind of associated his learning with like learning in the field. Um, uh, also related to what uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson says about the American scholar that, you know, Book learning is great up to a point, but if you keep on copying and pasting and repeating, reusing and recycling what's been done, then that's not really original. Um, And so from Dewey kind of coming out of that um, way of thinking, we get the hands-on learning, right? Learning by doing, learning through experience. That's crucial. But if I go back and think about my college education okay, I did that in my labs. I did that when I was studying biology, when I was studying geology. I can't really say the same necessarily, except for maybe creative writing where you draw from life experience, right? Um, And so how do we take not that 19th century context or not just the lab, but expand that to every classroom? How do we do that? Um, And there are a bunch of short activities in the book, ways to do that. Um, but in this context with these students, so for example, instead of fearing something like chat GPT, since that's what a lot of folks are talking about, right? This, this semester, my students and I are going to take our writing prompt for one of our paper assignments and we're going to give it to chat GPT and ask chat GPT to write a paper. And then we're going to grade it and we're going to edit it. And, you know, and I have colleagues like um, Shelly Eversley, who's at uh, Baruch College, who did this with her students. And they were like, this paper is so boring. Or like, this is just (laughs) wrong. That never happened in this book. You know, and so they're showing like their personality, right? What they bring to their writing, that kind of personal and, you know, it's not the humanities unless we learn how to be humans, right? Like AI Mm. cannot replace those humanistic skills. Um, I mean, it can help us find the ingredient, you know, here are the ingredients in my fridge, make me a recipe, but it can't give that humanistic element to it. 
And so um, rather than fearing those kinds of things, let's get hands on, let's dive deep, let's get dirty, let's get muddy and, and go. Um, and we can do that not necessarily just in the lab. Um, with bell hooks, I love bell hooks so much. I've learned so much from her that deep and meaningful learning comes from a space where we have trust, we have the ability to make mistakes, we know that we're, we feel safe, um, and we know that we're loved, um, that we're cared about. That's where deep and meaningful learning happens. It comes out of those those places in our hearts. And if we don't have that, right, then we're worried about, well, what grade am I going to get on this? And like, how are you who have all of the control in this situation, all of the power as my professor, how are you going to take away points so I don't get that A that I need to open the door to the next thing that I need? Um, so I'm curious if I can ask you a question since yeah. you talked about your own learning journey. Um, what are what's one of your favorite memories from your education like what's one thing that sticks out to you that you really remember um so my favorite classes were always reading classes hmm. so just like independent reading um <laughs> so i had uh -huh. a, i had a shakespeare class uh, in college and uh, we just read a play a week and wrote a paper on it every week which is actually like a mm -hmm. lot of work for you know the, the our english department uh, per class but it was just I really enjoyed that. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, I did a history of exegesis uh, course, and we read uh, about 2,000 pages in primary sources. And this was like a graduate level course and 700 pages. I was going to say, that sounds like yes. a graduate level yeah. course. <laughs> and uh, so we went from Aristotle <laughs> to Schleiermacher. Um, yeah, so 2,000 years, and we met once a week, and we would read, and then we would talk about uh, how that affected. Uh, uh, it was uh, mainly focused on biblical interpretation, but it ended up being, you know, we, we taught, I ended up going into philosophical hermeneutics kind of based out of that class. Um, you know, uh, we read the Didascalion. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was the, that to me was way like a lot more fun. Um, and then I ended up being a teacher, um, but uh, they just needed someone to kind of fit. And uh, so I started out part-time um, had a wife and kid. And so I was just trying to, you know, make it financially and, uh, made it uh, to full time. Um, and not here to, uh, bring up any bad blood or anything, but the experience was I, I did not been taught how to teach. So it was yep. high school. So this is right. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I was supposed to teach AP European history. I'd never taken any oh, AP wow. classes. And so they sent me to a seminar to teach me how to teach AP Euro European history two weeks before the semester began, or maybe three oh, wow. weeks. And I did not work on any content before that because I figured they would help me. I didn't want to structure my course till I saw what they wanted. And we spent um, the entire week talking about how to beat the test. That oh, was wow. all that it was on. Uh, the only thing we talked about for content is uh, we watched the Luther movie. That was what we did for this uh, seminar on how to teach AP European history. Okay. Um, so, uh, and the way that I was instructed to teach, I was not super comfortable. I often pushed things in ways that uh, more active, but also just trying to mix it up because I didn't want to stand. Yeah. It was a lot of work to like come up with my own stuff. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, so. Uh, they ended up having some financial troubles and I was the lowest man on, uh, you know, uh, gotcha. in the tier. So mm -hmm. I ended up being, uh, actually it's the best thing ever because I like creating content. I don't like, mm -hmm. like, I like, I've, I've created curriculum a couple times and I love that. Mm -hmm. Not there to like, um, my classroom management was pretty bad in terms of, <laughs> I like, I, 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 anyways, having the principal come in and seeing kids on phones in the back. And I was like. You know, I would tell them to put him away or whatever, but I, I just, I was not going to fight with him. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, which has led me to, um, we actually have, uh, you know, I, I want to be careful for legal reasons, but we have two foster kids right now and then three biological kids. So we went from two to five kids in four months. It's been very exciting. Um, so one of them's 10 months old. So obviously no schooling options there. Um, but uh the, uh, so I homeschool my two boys, and part of it is 
uh, it, it, as I, I was talking to my parents, like, oh, you know, you'd be able to work more in your business. You know, this is not my, my day job. Um, and I was like, I want them to be more self-directed in their learning. And yeah. what I saw is an incredible amount of dead time during the school day. Yeah. And I saw kids losing their desire to learn. And I was like, that's not real learning. So when I say <laughs> I, yeah. the, the foster, uh, the foster kids are in school and that's a, a stability and structure. And I don't have anything against different forms of schooling. But as a former teacher, I felt um, if given the opportunity, I wanted to. Uh, there, there's a like kind of it's interesting, you know, you, you, I'm, I'd love to hear more about how you handle syllabus and stuff like that. Sure. There's a lot of core competencies, right? I have a, mm -hmm. a third grader and a first grader. There's like, they have to be able to read. They have to be able to do yeah. math. But past that, yeah. like uh, we we uh, did less schoolwork for a week and we learned how to do a Rubik's Cube. And then we learned how to play Amazing. chess. You know, it's like whatever he was interested in. And so anyways, the long answer. Which is math. But yes, right. That I is math. Yes. I mean, that's like, yeah. I, for me, like um, you're never going to learn everything you need in K through 12 anyways. Yeah. Or in graduate. But if you yeah. have a, a hunger to learn and you learn how to learn. Exactly. So I um, exactly. and so that's actually turned a lot. My own projects is like focusing on wisdom, which is, you know, there's knowledge and then there's mm -hmm. how you mm. create your options. Right. In a, in a world that is very creative and looking at problems and looking how you can turn problems into solutions like is just such a. Uh, in ways that are that's embodied knowledge too, more than just mm -hmm. I, not to like. I understand there's a there's value in critical thinking, but sometimes I feel like critical thinking can often miss the. Uh, I feel like wisdom carries that hands-on aspect as mm -hmm. well. If that makes yeah. sense. So have, sorry, super long answer, but <laughs> I, no, I'm so glad that I asked you because there's so much there. So first of all, going back to thinking about philosophy and what's so engaging and memorable about any kind of, like going back to Aristotle, right? Is that this is all about the world in which we live. So it's immediately applicable, right? Um, so uh, when I met my partner, um, I met him online and I was looking for someone who had um, a good book list. That was the requirement, had to have a good book list. <laughs> So I see this guy online and he's got Wittgenstein in his book list. I was like, oh, wow. All right. You don't play. So <laughs> what do you do? And I was like, why are you in finance? <laughs> and I was just super curious. So I messaged him. I was like, these two things do not add up. Please mm -hmm. explain yourself to yeah. me. And he was like, oh, well, I got a master's in philosophy, but, you know, needed to pay the bills. And I was like, oh, okay. That makes perfect sense. Well, in our... In our like un coming to understand one another, um, there's this um, part of Wittgenstein uh, that I really love, the metaphor about the beetle in the box that like, well, if everyone has a box and we all say that you have a beetle in your box, but we don't know, we, we can't confirm that you actually have a beetle in the box or what type of beetle or what the beetle looks like, but we'll just tell everyone that they have a beetle in their box and they all look and they all close it. We all have very different ideas of what a beetle is, right? And but that's how we come up with that language. So anyway, that ended up making its way into our vows um, unexpectedly. <laughs> so, but that's the thing is that right? You're given this concept, and you can immediately think about, wow, how do I explain this abstract concept to my kid? Like, who hasn't seen what? Like, okay, I'm telling you, this is a beetle. But like you need all of these reference points. So for a while, my um, eldest grew up in the pandemic and um, he uh, I was trying to get him to understand what a dog was. Um, and we were totally isolated in New York. And so um, I was reading these books with dogs. And I would like bark and I'd say dog. Right. And we'd be out in the world and he'd see dogs. And it took him a while to actually develop an interest in learning what this is and what word it is to describe. And it wasn't until like a dog licked his face and like started barking and he felt the fur and like realized that dogs are fluffy and fun. Right. And he was like, oh, now I'm going to point at every dog I see. And then for a while it was funny because even when he saw small dogs, he thought they were cats. He was learning yes. categories, right? Categorical learning. And um, it was just so funny learning these categories. He saw a plane, he thought it was a duck. 
um, you know, understanding the world in which we live. And so that's experiential learning, right? And that a lot of that is baked into those kinds of courses that you were taking. Um, but what you're saying about, um, you know, your kids in these different grades and how to take a problem and turn it into a solution. Like I often think of, um, I, I'm a huge fan of public education. I'm at a, a massive, um, public, um, institution. I love public education and I love the, um, kinds of, um, the ways in which it brings so many different people with so many different backgrounds into the same space. And we all learn from each other more when there are different people in the room. Mm. Um, and there's also a crazy amount of bureaucracy, right? And like, like you said, dead time or, um, studying for a test, like just how do I pass this next level? Um, often those tests are written by people who have never taught in their lives, <laughs> yes. or they're written with people who have more privilege than necessary, like tests with questions about references that students wouldn't understand because they come from different backgrounds, right. Um, that are not accessible, that are, all have all of these hidden curricula in them, right. All of this kind of social knowledge and like this hidden curriculum that, um, unless you're given a crazy amount of time and attention and cultural education, you wouldn't understand this reference to this question and you'll get it wrong. Not because you're not capable, but just because the way the question is framed. So um, I think of um, turning that problem into a solution of helping kids to become smart navigators of a bureaucratic system because they're going to have to learn how to navigate through many bureaucratic systems throughout their lives. So here you go. This is like this extra bit of learning and life experience that is frustrating, is difficult. Oh, and gosh. the more you approach the whole system itself as a learning experience, then the better you will be at navigating that in the world because you're going to come up with it. Right. And you're just going to have to go to the DMV to get your driver's license renewed. And then you're going to find out that you also have to bring a piece of mail that has to have like some evidence of something. And you're like, what? I don't have that. Like, you know, you're going to have to fill out 50,000 forms, you know, and just learning that process and learning how to anticipate it, how to navigate it, how to do it successfully. Um, so I think of that, too. Um, you know, in thinking about dead time and how to use it. But what I love about what you said about the rubrics cube and um, chess and figuring out like what motivates students to learn, right? We think, oh, we need grades, right? We, we've been literally ranked and rated from birth. So, you know, that system when your child's born, they rank your child from like one to 10, it's the APGAR system and like, totally necessary. I understand like you need to diagnose like anything that needs addressing. Absolutely. But um, I started to become really curious about this um, when I started critiquing grading. And so when my second was born, they gave him like some like nine or 9.5. I was like, why not a 10? And they're like, oh, no one ever gets a 10. Right. <laughs> I was like, then why is there 10? Yeah. Just because you like an even number? Why not nine? <laughs> you know, it, F is the only like symbolic letter grade because they thought that E would be confused for excellence. And so, you know, A, B, C, D have no reference whatsoever, but then like, no, we have to skip E because people might think. That's not how we learn. We don't learn through shame. We don't learn through guilt or through feelings of, you know, guilty about feeling like we're procrastinating, guilty about how we're spending our time. We don't learn that way. Those are super negative feelings that shut down a brain immediately. Um, and connecting students with their internal motivators is really hard because it requires giving up a little bit of control, right? And trusting that if we set up an environment where they can thrive, that they'll take the lead and connect to that motivation. And so if you ask students, why are you here? They might not necessarily know why they're in college. It's like, well, this is just the next step in this education. Like, or like, I, I don't know how I got here. Uh, this <laughs> class just fit my schedule 
you yep. know, um, I did that. I played ultimate Frisbee in college and that <laughs> meant that I couldn't take certain courses during practice hours, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I took rocks for jocks and I was there with all my other ultimate friends and I learned a lot about rocks. Um, that wasn't the course that I wanted to be in. Sure. I learned a lot of things. I ended up writing a paper on, um, principles of geology, um, as a graduate student, but it, you know, there are sometimes these like happy accidents, like, oh, I'm so glad I ended up in this logic course. Now I understand how to better argue with my dad. That was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Give me a good logical proof and I can argue with you. Um, maybe I might win a couple rounds. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's accidental and it can be a happy accident. Sometimes students are utterly terrified because they walk into the room and they're like, I'm a bad writer. And I'm like, you belong here. You yeah. know, yeah. you belong here. It's okay. I'm, I was a bad writer. And if you saw a first draft of a paper I've written, it's bad. Yeah. It's okay. You know, and because there's all of that shame and guilt and comparing and external motivation that's not how we learn. We learn through, again, like love, deep interest, curiosity, learning what you said. And um, that takes making room and flexibility. And when you're teaching to a test, that's a, you know, that's a, a decent skill to learn how to, how to pass something, how to get over a hurdle. But if that's the only skills, like, are, if those are the only skills we're learning, yeah, that's not going to prepare you for the world where there isn't a, a B, C, or all of the above option. Well, and that's, um, if I can speak to that, that was so oh. disheartening when we, when I was teaching the AP European history class, the most driven students and the ones who were most curious were just utterly consumed because they're an AP. So these are the best students. They, because yeah. they're, an a, they're an AP, all they cared about was beating the test as well, because yeah. it's a huge investment of time. And what that meant was, is I, I don't think they remember anything from my course and I, I would take certain days when I could fit it in where I taught things that had nothing to do with that. And cool. because, and I don't think they, I, I think they got annoyed because <laughs> they were like, this is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Cause like I'm, I'm right. teaching them like, this is, I mean, when you talk about going through European history, like it's so applicable, right? <laughs> like, it's like, you're like, look at this. I'm like, this is why it's the way it is today. You know, I'm like taking them yeah. through like, this is John Locke. And this is why, this is the argument that, uh, created the United States, and this is the mm -hmm. argument that got rid of slavery in many cases, right? I mean, like, and there's, you know, there'd be certain flashes, but like, there was just that, there was always this huge barrier because they're like, well, is that going to be on the test? And I'm right. like, and if you're, if you're distracted, you're not going to learn. And that was, no. yeah. And that's, um, I, I mean, I, what's funny too, is uh, we get so easily sucked in that competition. I think it's why people think grades work. So for instance, sure. my sons, I don't grade. I just have them correct what they get wrong, mm. right? Because, and mm -hmm. you know what? They learn from that. Like, that's really, mm -hmm. and you you said it in here, but like, I often say to my wife, it needs to be safe to fail, right? That's the whole point yeah. of like childhood, really. Um, but you, you know what they made me do? Uh, they've stopped doing it, but I bet you can guess. What did they want me to do when they were done correcting? Give, you a, give them a grade. Yeah, I had to give them 100%. And I'm just like, yeah. but it doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't I mean anything, but they see it. They see other kids have it and they're like, I right. have to have the hundred percent. And I'm like, sure, here you go. I like, I'm like, I, and then I'll notice a mistake afterwards that like I didn't catch. And I'm just like, you know what? You have your hundred percent. I don't care. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, but, and that happens in real life too, right? right, right. Um, and things can go completely successfully and you might have messed up. I mean, that's also how, um, we got penicillin. Right. Happy accident. Yes. You know, it's um, it, it's funny because there's so much research behind two of the things that you've observed that. Um, so when we're studying for a test, we know that the brain is just forming these networks and it's going to drop them as soon as yep. that test is over. 100%. So students who get A's on an exam in May take the identical exam in September and they fail. There's a precipitous drop. I think it's like 70 percent in that content learning. And this is what I say about, um, you know, doctor, like a lot of the like pushback is like, well, what about doctors? Don't you want your doctors to like have all this stuff memorized? I'm like, they have an app that will tell them what conflicts with this medication. They have an app for that. 
Um, are they skilled at how to use it? Do they have the life experience of understanding the particular situation of my body and what I need as a person with XYZ who has this kind of lifestyle and this kind of family history? That's a skill, right? But that's that humanistic element again. That's not coming from rote memorization. That's not the skill that you need. Like, yes, you absolutely need, like, in an urgent care situation, some of those basic things, right? Um, There's core competencies, right? Like, there's things like, if you can't read, if you can't do math, like, you know, at a basic level, you're going to, yes. But, you know, if someone had told me why math, I probably would have gone into physics, but I just didn't know. <laughs> right, I was right. just studying for exams because yes. I had to catch up to my peers because I had failed this one test in fifth grade because I got one question. I was one question away from passing this one test. They let me retake it and I got the same question wrong again because no one gave me any kind of, they just said, here's the same exact test. And then and you I got, got the labeled same exact as things wrong. bad at math for a long time. Oh, yeah. Because that one oh, yeah. question. And I was yeah. on a completely different track from yes. fifth grade yes. through high school. And That's one crazy. year I took geometry and trigonometry together. And I did great. Yep. I did really well in things that are really hard for some people because yep. my teachers were passionate. The learning was great. And then I got to pre-calc and I just shut down. I literally cried Mm. so much over this one textbook that it Mm. looked like it had been soaked in the rain. Like it was horrible. And my TI-83 calculator died on the final exam day. And I was like, it is a sign from God. (laughs) I am terrible at math. I am doomed to fail. And I had to borrow my teacher's calculator. And I was like, that's it. I, I can't do this and, mm. you know, got around a few requirements in college and skated by. If you had told me that I could learn about the stars through math, which I really cared about at the time, I would have pushed through and just said, chalked it up to, all right, one bad teacher or one person who is probably significantly underpaid, undertrained, and probably going through some shit in their life, like, you know, we all do, and you can't reach every student. And in that class, I was that student that could not be reached. <laughs> and a lot of it was my mindset. Those yeah. things came easily to my parents, and they didn't know how to guide me through that process. They didn't know how to help me overcome my own anxieties as a student, getting ready for college, like all of the other mental blocks that were happening in my life. My parents were both of my parents who were in uh, different marriages were about to get go through divorces. Um, but I didn't know that. So I was being gaslit because everyone was telling me everything was fine. It was not. And so all this other stuff is happening in our students' lives. And if we don't take a moment to reach out to them and ask them how they're doing or what they're thinking about, like, then who cares about math? But I cared about the stars and I would have probably gone into physics. Anyway. No, um, I well actually, if it's you don't, so important. Yeah, I and um, I I have been blessed to have a, a stable home life. Um, we actually live in a multi generational house, and my parents live with us. Um, it's a big household. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, my dad, um, when he was six years old, his parents came in and were like, "Hey, we're getting a divorce," and he thought it was a car. He thought they were getting a new car, and that's like because <laughs> he didn't oh he didn't know to, you know what I mean and yeah. The, um, that's one of the problems with, uh, grading. And this is where, uh, you know, some of my, uh, thoughts on this have been informed by Heidegger and the idea of inframing and the idea of like, we create boxes because boxes are quantitative and we can, and that's where a lot of the grading comes in. It's like, sure. well, you know, whether or not, you know, it was just that one question, you just need that one thing, but you were good at math, but it was just that one thing you're on the different track because you've been put into this box. Never mind what personal things you're going through, right? And so uh, that is just um, what's really frustrating to me about a lot of this and what I appreciate about uh, what you're talking about is that, uh, you know, you're talking about navigating bureaucracy. Uh, I went and started my own business because I got kind of sick of... (laughs) 
I got kind of sick of it. I just like I just I just want to work and do what I'm supposed to do. And if I do it and it mm-hmm. does well, then I do well. I don't want to have to, you know, mm-hmm. do like um don't get me started about timesheets. But the oh. <laughs> so it's like I you know, like if this person worked eight hours, I worked eight hours, and I got more work because I actually worked and they, you know, it's it's a strange thing. Um mm-hmm. but uh I think I apologize for rambling a little bit. Some of it's the emotions of this. Like, I think everyone, everyone has educational stuff that they're just like, that was stupid. Like, this is part of it. It prepares you so little to be an adult, though. Like, and that's what you're like, if if, when you talk about like the, the, I I saw so many kids. um, And I even felt this in myself. I was fortunate enough to be good at academics. Right. So I was good at something. But when you Mm -hmm. look at it, it's like you had the, you have theater. You know, especially mm-hmm. I was in small schools, you had athletics mm-hmm. and you had academics. Never mind that there's like a million ways to be gifted and to make your way through the world. For sure. If you don't fit one of those molds, then you're just kind of like, like, what are you? Right. And of course, right. your identity shouldn't be solely in your work. But there is no mm-hmm. there is no flourishing. There is no blooming of the person you're supposed to be. And that's why you, you, I've talked to so many adults who are like 30 before they figure out they're good at something. And that's, yeah. and that's to me, we have done a, believe, a big disservice. Yeah, right. Or who believe that they're good at something. Right. Right. <laughs> like, yes, that's yes. the thing is, um, so the other research behind some of the stuff that you were saying, um, about your, your homeschooling and how you don't give grades. The other research is, um, that if you give feedback with no grade, you take out that distraction. I think you right. said, like it's distracting, right? Right. And then you have to focus on the feedback. Right. Okay. So what do I need to work on? What What's going well? And what do I need to work on? And so when you take out the grade and focus on that, students tend to do better um, than even with a grade and feedback. Um, and certainly better than just a grade alone with no feedback. Um And, but part of it, part of what goes into that is a growth mindset. This comes from Carol Dweck, and we talk about this in the book as well, Um, that now it's a bit controversial because a growth mindset isn't going to help someone with food insecurity or housing insecurity. There are basic needs that need to be met, right? Right. Um, Like as a kid, where I was in that moment in pre-calc, my basic needs emotionally weren't being met, right? So there, there were things totally out of control for my pre-calc, my poor pre-calc teacher. Um, but it can help us to understand that a breakdown can become a breakthrough, right? That it's, again, turning that problem into a solution. And that conversion, that takes so much resilience, so much persistence. And one of the things I tell people... I applied to PhD programs three times before I got in. I was rejected over and over again. And the it happened, it got to a point where I was like, maybe I'll just become an interior decorator. <laughs> and my oh. dad was like, um, why don't you try one more time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this time put everything into it. Mm. And I was like, all right. And then if I don't get in, I'll become an interior decorator. <laughs> But that's persistence, right? And so, and I say this over and over again at orientations or um, like those like meet and greets for grad students who are thinking of applying to grad school. I'm like, the only difference between success and failure is persistence. That is the only thing. You just have to keep going and figure out how to fit that particular shape and get that puzzle piece into place that's missing. And that's so hard to learn because we're often set, told, oh, you're good at math or, oh, you're good at English or you're good at that or you're not um, or you're not an athlete or, you know, or you'll never be an athlete or like your legs are too long to be a gymnast, whatever. It, it's um, it's that persistence and nurturing whatever your kid is interested in and that passion and um you know, you said that like you have to fail a little bit. Um, I'm thinking about potty training, my eldest. Um, we did the oh crap potty training method, which totally worked. It was it was great. Um, 
I couldn't plug that enough. Um, but uh, I'm gonna write that down. I still have I have one oh, more crap, to go. Potty training. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm thinking, um, but it's great. Um, but what I liked about it was that there are no accidents, and we never talk about accidents. It's just like we're all still learning, and that's it. We're still learning. You're still learning. And there's no judgment. There's no mistake. There's no, like an accident we often think of as something associated with shame or guilt or, or whatever, um, disappointment. But there are no accidents. We're all learning. Um, or you're you're still learning. Um, hopefully. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, are we all still learning (laughs) about potty training? Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, Well, you know, sometimes on the New York subway, I wonder. Um, (laughs) But but, um, I I think that that's important, that there's no shame or judgment in that. Um, And I try really hard. Um, You know, my kid was really sensitive about um, not being able to ride a scooter as fast as other kids and we would just let him run or like go around in the hallway and practice 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 and he would just say like I'm bad at it or like I'm not good at scooting and I'd be like no they've just had more practice than you like you're going to be so fast with practice and like and I think just trying to get out of that mindset of good and bad is is really hard to do when all of society kind of pushes that on us so um yeah, just throwing a little wrench into the wheel there. Yeah, I uh, the one. Uh, I don't know if you've read Angela Duckworth's Grit. It sounds like you might have been. I've heard of it. I haven't okay. read it yet. Yeah, yeah. very. I mean, what you're talking about, like that's one of the biggest things is just perseverance. The actually, the one I won't even call it a critique. It was just kind of interesting. She said kids from uh, difficult homes have less grit than kids with. Uh, we actually went through it mm-hmm. in my company together. Uh, kids from stable homes have more grit than kids from unstable homes, you know, or from traumatic childhoods. And I was like, I think they're just being grittier about different things. You know what I mean? I don't think mm-hmm. that's like, it's like, it's like, it's like sure. they don't stick with school. And I'm like, yeah, it's because they're, they have, they're working through emotional trauma, but that's a different thing. Um, the, <laughs> uh, but uh, overall love the book really helpful um, and I'm curious what, like, uh, and you've, you've kind of mentioned this, I think, and this brings us back to the, the syllabus point, um, is persistence is a key skill and the other ski, uh, key skill, ski kill, oh, <laughs> that's a different thing, um, is a kind of a self-awareness and mindfulness and constantly evaluating what you actually want and what you're actually interested in. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and that's the whole point of you leaving the syllabus open and that's where, especially with things changing so fast, uh, you don't always, like, they don't always know until they are forced to work through what questions they actually need answered. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is teaching them to get those right questions, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, they'll be like, well, I really want to learn about this. And you're like, that's not particularly interesting. But if you dig a little deeper, you're like, oh, you don't actually want to learn about that. You want to learn, you know, I had some friends um, and we were going through biblical interpretation. But what I realized is... Uh, Actually, so I love uh, this teacher was a tremendous and he just literally just pushed me to do whatever I wanted. So at it like he exactly what we're talking about here. Um, I was trying to learn uh, why people disagreed about different types of interpretation with the Bible. And so I was like, I looked up best books on hermeneutics and Gadamer came up truth and method. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it is I am not very thick. <laughs> and it is, it's philosophical hermeneutics. It's just, and Got I didn't it. know that. And so I was like, hey, I'd like to do, someone said, this is a really good book. I'd like to do a thing on it. He's like, sure, go ahead. And it was just baptism by fire. I didn't know anything what was going on. But what I found out is what I was really interested in is how we interpret. Mm. Right. And the, mm. and the, the real moments of learning come when we are really those baptism by fire moments when we are engaged. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I think we've all, you know, even as you're talking about like pre-calc, it's like, hey, let's take something you're not really interested in that you're not emotionally engaged in. And then let's take away your calculator and let's see how it goes. Right. Like, like <laughs> it's like, I don't understand what's wrong with her. She's so bad at math. It's like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, what? Um, oh, man. And so, uh, but that's, uh, I, 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 
to kind of uh, to bring it back around, I'd love to hear how um, how it better prepares students and what you've mm. seen uh, through. You know, if you want to talk about some of the techniques, but also just the idea of like, how do you fill up a syllabus then? And because mm. um, I'm sure I I think I have a lot of uh, people in academia who listen to this podcast sure. and they're like, OK, great. Very wonderful. You're leaving open 60 percent of your curriculum. Like, sure. I'm sure that wow. works really well for English or, you know, they'll say something right. demeaning or whatever. Mm-hmm. But how, how does that look and how do you end up making sure it's still profitable? Sure. OK. Um. So, I mean, there are a lot of courses in college where it's like, well, I'm teaching bio one, you need to be prepared with X, Y, Z for bio two. And so, um, you know, absolutely 100%. Um, I think figuring out where to cut back a little bit, um, what students can train up on on their own. Um, I spoke with, um, I did a whole uh, seminar with some um, STEM Uh, faculty at City College, where we talked a lot about ungrading and pairing back the content learning to focus on skills. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the faculty said to me, you know, I brought in this guest speaker and they were like, oh, well, so you know about X, insert fancy technical term I cannot remember here. Um, And she was like, I felt awful that I hadn't taught them that. Like, that was one of the things that got caught when I was trying to pair back content. And I was like, all right, well, let's just do a quick Google search. And I just, like, looked up the word. And I was like, is this a pretty comprehensive idea of what this is? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, so your students could Google that and figure it out if you train them how to do that well. Right. What's a reliable source? Where can I go to find this information? Do I know how to use an index in my textbook to go find the page where I can learn about X, Y, Z and figure it out on my own? That's a self-directed learner. Right. Oh, I heard this word. This happened over and over for me again in graduate school where people were just throwing out words like hermeneutics or ontology, epistemology, like name every ology ever. And I'm like writing all of these things down and I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea what anyone is talking about. Um, And looking them up, you know, finding the Stanford encyclopedia. (laughs) And so building those skills um, is important. And so I think when we focus on what are the skills my students need to be successful in this course, Am I assessing them only on those skills or is there a hidden expectation? Um, So am I thinking, oh, you must have learned that in bio one or in chem one or wherever. um, So I don't need to teach you that. Check in with yourself because we all teach differently unless you're all working together as faculty in a collaborative situation and you're making sure that there is that continuity unless you're doing that. And that would be great. Um, Don't assume, right? Only grade on what is the student learning in my class? What do they need? What do they need to take away? And focus on that skills-based learning. Teach them how to use the index. Teach them how to look things up they don't know. Um where to go for that information. Uh, um, can I interject this real quick? Yeah. Because I'd love to circle back to, uh, I wanted to mention this, you're talking about the doctors thing because a lot of people are like, I want my doctors to know. Even the doctors who test well still have to look up things. Like they are <laughs> doctors for 30 years. So mm-hmm. they still have to have these skills. If they, It's actually way worse if they know those things when they're testing, but don't know mm-hmm. how to look it up later. And the other thing, and I have a friend who, uh, because we are progressing so quickly, um, he is constantly taught, uh, he's going through medical school right now, that everything in their textbook is already outdated, no matter how new yeah. it is. And oh, so, man. and so this idea of, I mean, as you're talking here of like the, the real skill, like is it's not retaining information anymore. The real skill is being able to navigate information because you're going to forget and it's getting outdated so fast. So I, sorry, I just like, just to 100%. Back. No, I remember Again, public school kid. I was super up on biology with my textbook, went to college 13 years between publication dates. And I was like, we were just thinking about this a few months ago. 
and this has already happened like a, a whole like decade plus of this stuff like it was mind-blowing yeah. getting a textbook that had been published like more recently um so yeah 100 percent. so there are some things that like need to be done but in courses where a lot of the content is dictated and or are very restricted um you can at least ask students what questions are you most interested in so i know a professor who did this in his um early uh british lit class um where um the curriculum is kind of set um or determined and he asked the students what are you most interested in learning about and they focused on courtly love and he's like it never occurred to me but of course they're interested in love they're like asking <laughs> questions like what is it like to be in love how do you know if you're in love what is a good love of course they want to know about love why have i never thought about this in my life so just asking students first of all yeah. what are you most interested in or curious about and then focusing on that topic or that angle or that like how it's related to that aspect of their lives teaching the same content right there's so many ways to teach the same content and what i love about you know either going by students filling in a part of the syllabus maybe it's only one day of content um or one assignment um maybe it's a multimodal assignment instead of or like a project instead of a, a, a test um like there are different ways of doing this and having it guided by students where students make up the questions for the exam and explain to you why it's important why this question why these wrong answers why this right one that's more engaged mm. in experiential learning but if you um, want to know more you should buy and read the book but anyways <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah. Not, but I mean, but that's, you know, that's it. It's um, the thing about it that I think people don't realize is when students give you what they're excited about, it might be within your repertoire, it might not. And so it is one of the most exciting moments as a scholar to have to pivot and say, oh, I need to like, go find all of these resources on courtly love or, oh, I need to go like figure out what's happening in this local community with this flooding situation that my students are worried about because their parents' homes, their basements are flooded. What like, oh, I need to go find out more about how this thing relates to their lives and what they're curious about. And so as a scholar, you have to use everything in your arsenal to respond. And then the beauty of it is you break out of your silo. You break out of that echo chamber that you're in with your colleagues or in your research. And I've written articles based on the things that my students have recommended we read because, and I've, I've published on them, like, because they've convinced me, this is what we need to read next. And this is why, yeah, I want to read that. Yeah. I want to learn about that. And this is totally far afield from what I typically do. And Everything I do now is made better and stronger for that because I've broken out of my comfort zone. So it's just, it's one of the most rigorous ways to teach because your students are alert. They're like, oh, I'm responsible for part of this. Oh, I guess I need to show up. I guess I need to pay attention. You know, they're, they're shouldering a little more of that responsibility for learning. And it's less like, I don't get it. So it's your fault. It's more like, what am I going to contribute? What am I going to bring to this experience so that I get out of it what I want? And that's what we really want to do is put students in the driver's seat of their education. So they're self-driven, self-directed. They become self-starters. Those are entrepreneurial skills. They're thinking ahead. They're thinking in advance. They're learning how to ask a bad question, how to ask a good one, how to keep going. Like Those are the things that we want to see out of our college graduates so that they can literally save the planet that's like on fire. Mm. Um, literally on fire. No, uh, literally in, in several fire. places. Uh, yeah. One thing, let me say how much I uh, admire uh, what you're talking about, uh, partially because you know, you're talking about the students, but part of this is you are modeling for them what this looks like because you are often learning along with them, which is mm -hmm. in the end makes you a better teacher. Like you, you instead of just teaching your, your set course and you staying stagnant in your field of knowledge, for decades, mm -hmm. which often happens, um, you you are constantly learning, right? Um, yeah. But one of the things I you know is you're talking about Google and Googling 
terms, uh, I was when I, I was Google's just kind of getting going. And so what I would do is I would ask a lot of questions in class. I was a very mm-hmm. for some. Te- I had uh, many teachers tell my parents I was their favorite student, and I had many teachers tell my parents that I was their most annoying student. I just asked a lot. Like, I, I, I probably should care more about what other people think about me, but I was like, I just want to know. I like, hey, what's that mean? You know? Mm-hmm. And what I quickly found out, and this is what you are modeling, and it's just, even as you're talking about courtly love, like yeah, that teacher is probably like, I don't, like, <laughs> that's something that you kind of have to study up on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, there's really three things I see here. One is that there's a certain type of arrogance that just doesn't want to admit, I don't know. And this has yeah. come from my own experience where I would get like shut down really hard and teachers would get mad at me for asking questions. And at the time I was very confused because I thought they were good questions. Yeah. And looking back now, I'm like, those were mm-hmm. good questions. You didn't know the answer, mm-hmm. which is like, that. but that's, that. and mm-hmm. you know, so what you're modeling for the student is a lack of learning there. The Another yeah. one is laziness. Like, and I mean, let's just be honest. Like there's some, yeah. But and I think the third one, and this is to be not just generous, but just to be realistic, sometimes just burnout. And that's where, 100% I mean, like so most much teachers, I mean, and this is where like, um, and I do, I, I love, like the United States needs the public school system. Like we need educated citizens, right? Like this is important. Like I believe in that. Um, teaching 20 to 25 kids, uh, often having to fill an extra class because of budgetary things or all these, like that's that's the other side to it too, right? Um, and so th- it's where, you know, growing, and that most of, I think it was like 50% of teachers leave in the first three years. And I think if they mm-hmm. stick it out, you know, it gets easier because you get a handle on things. Mm-hmm. But it is, um, you know, and I'm I'm talking about stats I saw from Twitter, you know, but I saw, I it was from like, uh, you know, New Scientific American or something. It was talking about a Gallup poll that the number one, uh, number one uh, burnout, uh, Occupation was K through 12 educator. Mm. And number two was higher ed educator. Yeah. This is over paramedics. This is over, like, you just like look at it. And I mean, and that's what I felt. I felt terrible. It felt awful teaching. Mm -hmm. And that was really frustrating because I love, there's nothing more I love than the light bulb moment, right? I love the light bulb. Yes. And so, so, this is what what stops us it's really a, a challenge to us and that's where i think you started off with you know i haven't really referenced your book as much as i probably should have in this discussion but the we need to the change starts with us yeah right like it really does it starts yeah. with like just being willing to admit i um i don't know if you're familiar with dr lewis gordon but I, when mm-hmm. he teaches he says uh the way he introduced himself to glass like i am not your teacher i am just a far more advanced student Right. No, I well, he, love that. he says I'm a I more. He doesn't say mm-hmm. far more. I I added that because he's far more. But he's <laughs> he's an advanced student. That's what he says to them. And that really yeah. is. That's such a great way to model this. I it's like that. I'm in charge here because I know more than you, but I don't know everything. And then so, mm-hmm. anyways, I, I think a lot of what you're talking about has to be modeled by the teacher, and that comes with being yeah. willing to say, I don't know. Well, and I think this is a dialogue, right? So there's a part of the syllabus that's blank. And um, for example, I let students determine how um, we were going to do um, one assignment. I gave them a few options to choose from, just to give them ideas for what it could be. And they were like, well, let's do weekly reading reflections. And I was like, dear Lord, please do not send me weekly reading <laughs> I cannot read that much and get it back to you in a timely manner. I cannot oh, do that. Yeah. And they were like, oh. Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, you don't want weekly? I was like, no, please, <laughs> no. It's a dialogue, yeah. right? Because the care goes both ways. And mm. right, there's still that boundary. I'm mm-hmm. still reading them, grading them, you know, like giving feedback. And yep. I still have so much control and so much power in this situation. So that it's important to hold that boundary, right? I'm not their mom. I'm not their therapist. <laughs> but there's still that dialogue. And we yeah. kind of have to lift a, that or like lower that wall that mm. we put between us a little bit just a little bit to have a dialogue to just kind of peek over um the wall um at each other and just say no that's that's too much for me and when we did that so they basically decided um that 
we could do these biweekly reading reflections. If they wouldn't be graded, I just tell them what's strong, what's weak, and grade it as complete or incomplete. Um, and when we were deciding this, one student said, um, having to keep track of that many deadlines is like the worst thing for me. Like I, I, I would rather just have one high stakes midterm. Yeah. Like, please don't give me a multiple deadlines. It's like fair. Like that's totally legit that that's too much for you. You're a different type of learner and we don't have to go with majority rules here. We could talk about the merits of majority voting versus consensus. And I said, why not say, or you can either do biweekly reading functions or a midterm paper. You just have to let me know by X date. There's my boundary, right? That's where I need to know right. by X date what you will do. And then here, here's your deadline for your midterm. This many words, it equals the same amount as the biweekly reading reflections. I will do the traditional feedback and grade because that's what you want. That's fine. There is room for you in this class too. You can pick. Um, and so holding the boundaries that you need, but allowing that kind of dialogue back and forth made our, our syllabus more flexible, more accessible to every learner. You can cater to every learner um, while holding important boundaries for you. And it reduced a lot of the burden on me because I didn't have to do the intensive grading and explaining why this grade and not that. I just did complete or incomplete, strong, weak, here's why it's strong, here's why it's weak, focus on that, the final papers were better. Yeah. They were just better. Because they were, yeah, because they were focusing on the feedback. But this mm -hmm. all goes back uh, um, to what you were talking about with bell hooks. What you're really doing is you're making yeah. the classroom human. Yeah. Right? Like, well, and I mean, that was in the bell hooks discussion. It's a community. Right. Like, you, you are there. You're talking about this. Um, yeah, I'm reading Joseph uh, Piper right now on leisure is the base of, basis of culture. And that, that difference between servile arts they have a, a use outside themselves and liberal mm. arts, the ones that are mm. useful in themselves. And that's really what literature is, right? Like it's this mm -hmm. idea of like, it's part of being human to tell stories and these sorts of things. Um, and if, <laughs> if the whole grading system is, a, is literally counterproductive to that feeling, like it kind of destroys the meaning of the class. I, I want to be respectful of your time. So let me ask you, I, you know, this is always the, this is probably the question that my uh, guests hate the most, but my audience likes the most. So, you know, um, sure. if you could leave our audience with uh, one takeaway, just something to think about through the week, not mm. necessarily a summary of everything you said, because I don't think that's fair, but what's a takeaway that you would leave for them to think about besides reading, uh, reading your book, you know, buying, reading it, implementing it? One is realizing how much power and control you have in this relationship and giving up a little bit of it, you still hold almost all of the cards in your hand. And so thinking about where you could leave room for students to take a little more agency and autonomy um, to get practice in, um, in using that freedom in your class. And the other is related to that, which is what's your intention? Um, and connecting not with external motivators of it has to be rigorous, um, whatever that means to your institution. Um, and that can be really distracting or external um, motivators like, oh, you know, I have to assign more C's or B's um, or like, you know, just kind of t setting the external motivators aside and thinking, what's your internal motivation? What's your intention? Um, and what do you want your students to get from your class? And what do you want to get out of it? Um, just to really connect with your intention, because we can get really distracted by all of these things all of the time. And we are burnt out. We, like you said, um, but realizing how much control and power we have and what our intentions are can help us to remember that the point is to promote student learning and learning is the goal. Um, and that might mean different things to different people, but we forget that the point 
of going to college is to learn. And so trying to shut down learning less and focus on it more, um, asking those, reminding ourselves of those two things, our intention and how much power and control we have can help us focus on learning. What a beautiful summary, Dr. Katapotis. It's been an honor. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. 